You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Deeper and wider, those are changes that may be coming to Honolulu Harbor as part of the 2050 Master Plan. 2050 sounds like it's way down the road, but it's not really if you need to make more than a billion dollars worth of improvements to deal with sea level rise, resiliency, and efficiency of a critical lifeline. We talked to Derek Chow, Deputy Director of the State Harbors Division, about what's in store for harbor users. We are a landlord port meaning that the state owns all the land and leases it out to the tenants. And the tenants, which are maritime users generally, they are responsible for the operations and the day-to-day activities at the harbor, whether they're shippers, shipping cargo, or they're ship builders or repairs, or some kind of other maritime activity like fishing. So what happens a lot of times is without a master plan, People focus on just the day-to-day, what needs to be done for operating today and then tomorrow. The master plan looks out ahead and gets people to think ahead and say, okay, beyond just what I need today and what I'm doing tomorrow, what do I need in the future? What are the changes in the industry that's occurring, whether it's larger ships, ships that have greater ways of maneuvering, or in the case with what we're studying in that corvage engineer study, what are the resiliency and what are the climate change sea level rise needs? And so we've been acting upon a lot of different projects that's modernizing the harbor, not just maintenance and repair, but actually looking forward to the future. And so this master plan guides us even further for that. So the whys of this is that we've got to be more resilient. We are in hurricane season, and we hear a lot about how we just need to be better prepared because the harbors are our lifeline. That's right. Harbors are our lifeline. And the first thing that we do before we even think about what repairs might be needed after a disaster is we look at how do we prevent the disaster or disastrous things from happening. And so operationally, you know, they look at how to uh, store materials better so that they don't end up, you know, flying around or being pushed into the water. But then after that, then we look at, yeah, what are the resiliency needs that we need for recovering, for sustaining and recovering from a disaster. And part of this plan calls for widening parts of the harbor, making it deeper, and then finding a way to deal with that Sand Island Bridge. That's correct. Yeah, so widening and deepening is associated with more operational efficiency. As ships get bigger, longer, wider, and deeper, they need to have a larger space to operate in. And so that's why we're looking at widening and deepening the channels and the turning basin. The Sand Island Bridge, which was, there was one bascule bridge constructed long time ago, and in about the 80s, there was a new fixed concrete bridge that was put in. So basically what that did is it stopped us from having large ships go through that channel. What we're looking at, and this is actually a big initiative by the Coast Guard, is how do we allow ships to go in and out of the harbor if the main channel is blocked? And so if there's a storm that comes through and for whatever reason dumps debris in the harbor channel or strands a boat in a harbor channel like happened in the Suez Canal, how do we continue to get cargo and other activities in and out of the harbor? So that Sand Island Bridge has to be addressed and the deepening and widening of that Kali Channel also has to be addressed. So you're looking at whether there's some kind of removable bridge or a tunnel? So we're going to let the study dictate what it is. They'll look at all the options, including the removable bridge, including a tunnel, including maybe having a higher span bridge. There's a bunch of different things that we'll let the study look at. And the study will look at it from the standpoint of cost, 
functionality, economics, and environmental impacts. And we did see Matson invest in those larger cranes, and they have those larger ships, the larger vessels. And there's a plan to move Pesha over to Kapalama, and you folks have made those improvements as part of phase one. Yeah, so the new cranes are indicative of the cargo vessels getting bigger, taller, deeper, wider. And so those cranes have a higher reach, a deeper reach, and a longer reach or wider reach. So, yeah, so we're trying to respond to how the industry is changing their modes of moving cargo to increase efficiencies and reduce costs to the consumer, ultimately. Pesha will be moving over to the new Kapalama terminal once it's finished in 2023. What that means, though, is that when they move, Matson will have the chance to expand the area where Pesha currently is adjacent to Matson. And so that's a good thing for Matson as well. So that's why Matson is also supportive of this new Kapalama terminal because that means they'll be able to expand as well. And the Kapalama terminal, phase one is finished over $180 million. And phase two, which is now underway, is over $350 million. So it's a half a billion dollar investment for the state to create Kapalama terminal. So this master plan then is just an opportunity for us to say we have some immediate needs just because of disaster planning, right? We've got to be prepared. And then we also have to figure out, okay, long term, how do we go about making ourselves more resilient? Yeah, so Honolulu Harbor obviously is our primary harbor. A majority of all of the cargo that comes into the state of Hawaii first comes into Honolulu Harbor and then is transshipped out to the neighbor island. But majority of the goods, because of the larger population, does stay on Oahu and delivered out of Honolulu Harbor. So yes, we do want to protect our primary harbor. We do want to upgrade it so that it meets future demands. And we certainly want to be able to recover from a storm or prevent experiencing damages when a storm passes. What other plans are in the works, you know, when it comes to, let's say, our uh, commercial fishermen or our cruise ship industry? So for the commercial fishermen, you know, they're limited by the number of permits that there are. So we don't see a growth in that particular industry. Um, Right now, they're currently located primarily at the Fishing Village Pier 38 area and the Pier 17 area. Um, We do see some shoreside improvements to support the crews, um, you know, allow them to source the ships more efficiently and get fuel. So that's kind of what we're looking at for the fishing community. As far as the cruise terminals right now, Pier 2 is the primary cruise terminal. And for those that have gotten their vaccines, Pier 2 is where Hawaii Pacific Health is utilizing the terminal right now to give vaccines. But that's our primary cruise terminal. It's the largest, most efficient, and it has probably the biggest area that allows passengers to get on buses and go on their tours. We also have a smaller secondary cruise terminal at Pier 11 at Aloha Tower. That one is not so efficient because Pier 11 and Aloha Tower area is small and it's rather congested. So we are looking at ways of expanding the Pier 2 cruise terminal to be a larger terminal and we can put uh, multiple ships there. What's happening with the terminal that was built, you know, many years ago for the Inner Island Ferry that failed? Oh, so that's Pier 19. So when the Inter Island Ferry went away, the state purchased the terminal. Basically, we paid off what the federal government put into it. And now we use it operationally. So there's numerous activities that go on there. First and foremost, the operations area, the laid-on area, has cargo, has cars, is used for a large variety of um, maritime activities. 
And then the terminal itself, uh, we're considering making that a new location for our base yard, people that do the operations and maintenance of the harbor facilities. And you talked about funding from the federal government. So what's the plan to fund the improvements that we need to make through Honolulu Harbor? So majority of the improvements are going to be funded through the regular harbor's special funds, which is revenue we generate from the harbor users and tenants. We collect fees from leases. We collect fees from harbor usage. Don't get a whole lot of federal funds. We're not like highways where there's formula funds. Our funds for maritime industry are competitive grants, and that's the case nationwide. So we have to have a particular project ready, and when grants become available, then we can apply for the grants. But if those grants, if we aren't successful in obtaining a grant, uh, we have to you know, plan, design, and build it with the money that the state has a special fund. Just to underscore the importance of this plan, you know, because, uh, as you said, the majority of the goods come into Honolulu Harbor first, and then, uh, you know, like Young Brothers then takes it over to the smaller islands on, on its barges, right? Right. Young Brothers and Matson both. And so those plans and the resiliency and access issues, all part of this master planning effort. Yeah. So one of the big things that you'll see at the new Kapalama Terminal, right now, Pesha, who is the entity that primarily uses Young Brothers for shipping items that came from the mainland. And then Young Brothers also takes care of the inter-island shipping, things that are shipped within the island. PESA right now puts cargo containers on a truck and trucks it over to Sand Island Bridge and then to Young Brothers uh, on Nimitz. With PESA moving over to the Kapalama Terminal, they'll be adjacent to the Young Brothers Terminal. And so there would not be a need anymore to put those same trucks with cargo containers coming off of Pesha onto the roadway. They'll go directly onto the pier and then Young Brothers barges from, from that point on. So there'll be less congestion from trucks with less trucks on the road on the Sand Island Bridge and Sand Island Access Road and Limits Island. Okay, but then we will have that access problem, you know, resolved. Let's say if, you know, we have a, a Category 4, Category 5 hurricane and we just got to keep our fingers crossed that we don't get uh, uh, hit by one of those storms before these improvements are made. That's correct. But even before then, we work very hard and closely with the Coast Guard to reduce the chances that you know we're going to experience um, significant damage and that if we do that, we have the ability to um, reopen the harbors as soon as possible. That was Derek Chow, Deputy Director of the State Harbors Division. Part of the master planning underway for Honolulu Harbor also includes a possible uh, lock and dam system to deal with rising sea levels. There is an upcoming virtual meeting on August 4th if you want to find out what's in the draft plan and to provide input. We'll have, our link, we'll have links on our website later today. is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. 
With the Olympics underway in Tokyo, we dive back in time to the 1930s in Maui to highlight Soichi Sakamoto and his dedication to developing Olympians. Sakamoto was a science teacher at Pu'unene School, but in 1937, after observing plantation children swimming sprints in the sugarcane irrigation, irrigation ditches, he was inspired to form a swim club. Although Sakamoto uh, never had been a competitive swimmer and had no coaching experience, he made it his goal to train members and help them qualify for the Olympics. A year later, the club members were winning every meet it entered. By 1939, it won a national swimming title and would have populated the majority of the 1940s U.S. Olympic swimming team. However, World War II canceled that year's Olympics in Tokyo, and Sakamoto's athletes never got to compete. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you name that club founded by Suichi Sakamoto? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. A local rap group called Angry Locals this week released an edgy video entitled Super Stinky. It sends a strong message to visitors to discourage them from harassing Hawaii's endangered marine uh, wildlife. Uh, it's had over 32,000 views on YouTube. And if you haven't heard it yet, here's a clip. Double check the warning sign. This is Aina, not Honolulu Zoo. Touching seals and turtles isn't groovy, dude. That's a big N O like Hootie Who. You get hit with a suku kukachu. Chiho, let me educate you. How you feel if I grab you by the back and shake you? Tap you while you napping for a vigil. Post it with a caption just like a Mona. We gon' regulate you. Well, the song once again shines a spotlight on recent viral videos of tourists touching Hawaiian monk seals and Hawaiian green sea turtles. Both are endangered species protected by federal law. Uh, the video sparked a big uh, public outcry for more visitor education as daily visitor arrivals start to match pre-pandemic levels. But while uh, much has been made about keeping our native species protected while resting on land, what about while they're at sea? The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration last week released the cause of a death of a monk seal found dead in waters off Oahu this past May. The Conversations Russell Subiano spoke with Dr. Michelle Barbieri, the head of the Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Project at NOAA, about the seal's death. Monk seal RM90, known locally as Mele, was found dead in May on the windward side of Oahu. Can you share her cause of death and what your organization believes is the most plausible explanation for the death? I can, and it's a hard thing to talk about because she was a special seal and a seal that a lot of us really invested a lot of time and energy into, and it's so unfortunate that she's passed away. We pursued quite a few analyses and did a lot of discussing about her case, and one of the hardest parts about this is that the carcass was fairly decomposed, and that makes things that are more subtle in terms of the post-mortem analysis that we do 
kind of hard to interpret. But we were able to narrow it down to two leading possibilities. One of the findings in the postmortem exam called the necropsy is that the intestines were severely twisted. And when that happens, and we, we do know of one other monk seal that has died from an intestinal issue in the past. When that happens, usually there's some indication in looking at the tissues that that happened and, and caused disruption of the blood supply and, and shock and other things. And I didn't see that in the in the examination. So it definitely was causing me to scratch my head a lot and, and work with a lot of other experts to try to tease out the significance of that. Because one of the other things that can happen is that twisting of the bowel can, can occur after death if there's decomposition and gas production in the intestines that make them kind of like balloons that can twist around one another. So so there was that. And, and then there were some other findings, such as hemorrhage around the, the shoulder area and the top of the head, and hemorrhage meaning bruising, that were kind of scratching our heads a little bit more in the direction of potentially drowning. And drowning is a very difficult diagnosis to make in, in a lot of these cases, but specifically that type of hemorrhage and that distribution of hemorrhage is one of the clues that that might be in play. We also saw some edema or fluid in the lungs that, again, it's not a specific finding that you only see in cases of drowning, but it is seen in cases of drowning. And so those were the two leading hypotheses for her cause of death. And we feel that they're both still possible. We can't definitively say one or the other, but we feel that it is more likely that the drowning potential was the cause of death in her case rather than the intestinal twisting because we just didn't see the, the tissue damage that we would have expected to see around those intestines in a way that we thought gave us solid confidence that that intestinal issue was something that happened before she died and led to her death. It's possible, though, that both of those things kind of co-occurred, leading to a rapid death that maybe we could have just not had enough data to, to discern. So that's a long-winded way of saying that we think more likely you probably drowned from entanglement is one of the most common reasons why a monk seal here in the Maine Hawaiian Islands would be found to have drowned. And she had an external hook in the side of her mouth that we know predisposed her to getting entangled already once, and that was fortunately removed at that time. But that hook was unique in the sense that it protruded from the side of the face quite a few inches and potentially was another risk factor in why she got entangled. For a monk seal to get entangled in a net, is that something that you see quite a bit of, or is it a pretty rare occurrence? We do, unfortunately, see monk seals die from drowning in nets more often than we would like. Because they are challenging to definitively diagnose, and we try to be very conservative with, with how we do that, there probably are more that go unnoticed or potentially undetected in the first place. But we know that since the mid-1970s, we've had quite a few net-related entanglements that are confirmed. That number is six. And for suspected drownings with RM90 included, we have 10 of those. So more recently, there was a, a study we completed at the end of 2019 with data looking at causes of death in monk seals in the main Hawaiian Islands. And drowning in lanets is one of the key causes of death in seals and one of the things that is limiting the growth of the population. And it's important, I think, to say that in many cases, 
we suspect that these are nets that are being fished illegally, that, that legally fished nets, we would hope, would mitigate that threat substantially. So, you know, we, we really are concerned about this threat. It is one of the top causes of death in Monkfields in the main Hawaiian Islands. And unfortunately for RM90, it means that not only did we lose her to the population, but we also lose the reproductive potential that she had for the species and the pups that she would have given birth to. So you're probably wondering, where do these nets come from and what more can the public do to keep things out of our oceans that would harm our endangered marine life? Uh, Russell Silviano talked with Ryan Jenkinson, head of the Protected Species Program of the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources. They're generally lay nets, which are nets that are laid out and then left in the water for an extended period of time to uh, fetch all the fish and then they're brought back in. So when there's something like that that's unattended, there's not people around, the seals will come in because there's fish just sitting in the net stuck in there. That is the most common way that we get drownings and deaths and fisheries interactions with monk seals in the Hawaiian Islands. So it sounds like the nets are coming from people on land who lay them more so than, say, boats who lose them or or, yeah. or detach. Yeah, okay. it's usually a, a land-based operation. You can go a little bit because the nets aren't that big comparatively. They're not they're not like commercial, large commercial fishing net type things, like trawling nets or anything like that. So they're usually laid from shore. Some people will paddle out on a board or something to lay it out a little farther, but generally shore-based. And what does state law say about using nets like this to catch fish? So there are rules that DAR has about using lay nets. There are restrictions on the size of the net, how large the mesh is. That means like how large each hole is within the net and then how you're supposed to attend it. So you need to be checking on the net really regularly. And any net left unattended for more than a few hours is in violation. And the idea behind that is you don't want things like seals and turtles getting stuck in it. And if you're always there, you can avoid that. Because if you're around and you see a seal around, you can either pull in the net or yell at the seal. It'll, it'll be spooked by you. So that's the best way to avoid this kind of thing is if you're lay net fishing to be with the net at all times. I know sometimes we see seals with hooks stuck in the side of their mm-hmm. mouth. And I know Mm-hmm. Fishermen get their hooks stuck on on rocks. You know, what do you, what do you do? Do you just cut your line and and let it go? How can we avoid more hooks in the sea that end up in mug seals' skin? So there's a couple things. One of them, when you're snagged on the bottom, it's not when you're fishing from shore and yeah. you cast their way out. There's not a lot you can do unless you want to swim out there, dive down, and free your hook. Mm-hmm. The first recommendation that we have is to fish with what are called barbless hooks. Okay. And so most fishing hooks have a little barb on the end, and that really catches in the fish's lip or in its mouth, and it doesn't let the hook release out, which is great when you're fishing, except that also does the same thing for things like seals and turtles, and it's really harmful, and that's what really hurts the animals. In addition to that, if you do get snagged and you're using a barbless hook, it's probably easier to get the hook off of the bottom, off a rock or whatever it's snagged on. If you are snagged on the bottom, the best thing you can do is try to cut the line or break it off with the least amount of what's called trailing line in the water. Because there can be a hook on the bottom and then there's 200 feet of line floating around in there. And that will often snag on things like turtles and it can be a problem. So try to leave as little line as possible. And there was a large public outcry recently after a couple of videos surfaced on social media of tourists touching monk seals as they were resting on land. 
Does the state feel it's just as important to be careful of the things that we put in the oceans that could potentially harm them out at sea? Yeah, so there's all kinds of threats for these animals, you know. The variety of things that are impediments to the recovery of these species that are endangered and rare and unique to Hawaii. So everything from things we put at sea, so that includes our debris and waste. We have a program now at the state where we're trying to pick up the large derelict fishing nets. So those are, those are the kinds of nets that are fished offshore in deeper water, but they wash up. Seals are naturally curious, and they will get entangled in those things. So we have a hotline number to call in to that to try to get them off of the beaches as soon as possible. Another big threat to especially seals is disease transmission and toxoplasmosis, and that is from cats that are on the island. So keeping your cats inside at all times is really important, and that's a huge problem for recovery because that toxoplasmosis seems to target female seals more than anything, and those are obviously the reproductive ones. So when you're trying to recover a species, you want and need more of the females. And, you know, from the perspective of the state, you can't follow every person who arrives in the Hawaiian Islands for a vacation around, you know, and monitor all of their activities. So a lot of what we can do is ask the general public to keep their eyes out and to increase our education and outreach to visitors to let them understand that these are rare animals and they're also part of the culture here. And to just be respectful, the same as if you were visiting anywhere on earth. These are part of the culture, they're part of everyday life here. You don't disrespect them, you don't go up and touch them. You keep a safe distance and just be stoked that you get to see these animals, they're rare. Check the warning sign. Just a friendly reminder when you get off the plane. Do not touch the turtles. Do not touch the seals. Do not touch anything at Iolani Palace. That was Ryan Jenkinson, head of DLNR's Protected Species Program, and Dr. Michelle Barbieri, head of the Hawaiian Monk Seal Research Program at NOAA, talking with Russell Subiano. Wrapping up our look at citizen science with a beach trip to the Big Island. Hawaii uh, Viola works with 10 partner organizations, including the Department of Health, to take water quality measurements in Kona, Hilo, and South Kohala. They sample everything from salinity and temperature to bacteria and nutrients in our ocean. Uh, the data can be used to make real-time decisions about brown water advisories, as well as to help us determine uh, the long-term management strategies of our beaches should be. And Hawaii Waiola is taking its first cohort of volunteers this August. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Erica Perez, one of the heads of the program, about how to get involved. So I would say that the average volunteer or the volunteer that we're looking for are community members that are concerned about their water quality. Uh, if they have a connection to the ocean, if they have um, if they've used the ocean within their life and have concerns of the health of it, or if there's harmful contaminants in the water, this is a great avenue for you to find out those things and then also be able to be actively involved 
and create change. So all of the regions and all of the sites that we sample were picked and determined under a certain criteria. And one of those criteria is an active community that could then use the data to be able to guide management in the way that their community or their ahupua'a wants to see it guided and managed. So it's very much a bridge, I think, between the state Department of Health organization and local communities on the ground to be able to really collectively work together and collaborate for resource management. So the organization has been collecting data for how long? So we started collecting data in 2018 in Puaco, where we initially were doing our our regional coordinator training. So we were able to, during our, our trainings, we were able to continually sample that site. We brought on the Kona and Hilo region um, in 2019. So we now have a year worth of data across all three regions. And then we have a little bit more in Puaco. And of course, the data you collect allows people to make real-time decisions about beach closures in response to high brown water days or increased sewage presence in the water. But now that you have a little bit of a longer timeline under your belt for these locations, are you seeing any trends or any anomalies in the data, things you weren't expecting? Yeah, that's a great question. So what's really exciting I guess there's always a silver lining for so many things and the silver lining for this program in with the lens of COVID was we were able to capture a, a very unique data set of, of no visitors on our beaches. So basically minimal to no use of the shoreline. And we were able to capture that year of data to see is is there biological shifts or you know what what changes have we seen in our water quality with no use essentially and that data is just being quality assured now so we haven't ran any trend analysis on it as we open we look forward to being able to compare what that closure looks like versus Hawaii full operation, full tourism, everybody using the shoreline again. Hmm. So our data sets don't become publicly accessible immediately because of that quality control aspect. The goal of the data is to be able to integrate it into the Department of Health data set. And so every two years, the State Department of Health runs their integrated water quality assessment mm-hmm. for Hawaii's shorelines. And by 2022, they're gonna be preparing to do their, their next report. And in that report, our data will be integrated into their data to be able to, to utilize as well as accessible at the public level. So public and communities can access it or universities can access it, or schools can access it to develop lessons and academic curriculum. So this new cohort of volunteers that would be launching in August would start with 
um, an introduction to the program and then work through the modules and then would come out and do hands-on training in the field after those uh, sessions are complete. And we look for volunteers for many different purposes. We have volunteers that go out and actually collect the data. We have a need for volunteers to input data. We have need for volunteers to look more at the analytical end of the data and be able to do more of data analysis. So there's different positions that program needs in order to function and operate in the way that we want to. On our website, hawaiibiola.com, we have a volunteer form. So definitely if they go to that website, they can fill out the form and then they can put kind of like more personalized tone of what kind of volunteer they would like to be. We're an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and I think every person here in some way is connected to the ocean. And whether you surf, you dive, you swim, you eat from it, you have a, a cultural component, we all in some way are connected to the ocean. And I think that this is an amazing opportunity for community members to be actively involved in caring and managing for their resources. And I think that this is a fantastic bridge between state organizations and communities. So it's not just this top-down direction of taking care of the shoreline, but that it also is coming from a bottom-up a bottom information of, of what the community themselves want to see and how it is they want the quality of our waters to be. I think that it's a great way to make positive change for our future generations and leave behind a healthier ocean. In my time of working within conservation in Hawaii, I've seen our oceans, I've seen our reefs change. And it is not just government laws that are going to fix it. It's not up to regulations all the time. I think that as community members, we can also make a difference and we can also involve the younger generations in teaching them how to carry it on. That was the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote speaking with Erica Perez of Hawaii Viola about taking water quality management into our own hands. Inspired by the Big Island Initiative, but maybe live on Maui. Well, good news. Uh, Hawaii Waiola was modeled after Maui's Hui Oka Waiola, which takes volunteers. We'll have links to both on our website. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Rabbi Paul Citron, author of I Am My Prayer. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about enlivening prayer that wakes us up and opens our consciousness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to be part of Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring pop-up installations across the museum. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. On our Reality Check segment today, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about rail ridership. Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning to talk about it. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So the story is something that Marcel Henri wrote up uh, about the projections, right? Right, exactly. How many people are estimated by heart, the rail authority, to actually uh, ride the train whenever that train gets running. And Marcel actually filed a public records request with Hart to, to get these numbers. And it's, um, it's a little bit of a surprise. The, the, the forecast by Hart for daily boardings uh, every day, meaning how many people board the, the train, um, were about 122,000, a little over 122, 123,000 almost per day. That was the prediction by the year 2030. Well, now that number has been revised downward to 101,000 K, or 101,000 rather estimate. And so that's about an 18% drop or percentage point drop, I guess is another way to put it. This is based on Hart's internal modeling numbers uh, from May, but I think even more significantly, this is pre-pandemic numbers, uh, you know, because they're basing it on a decline in bus ridership. But this is all from before March 2020. So one wonders whether those numbers may decline even further, the projection for ridership on the train. That's a lot of people, 20,000, 20K. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that is a lot of people. And, and it does assume some things that may not necessarily pan out. I mean, I don't think it's any uh, surprise to any of our listeners that uh, to hear that the the project is way over budget, way behind schedule. This data assumes a five year head start uh, to grow the ridership by 2030. But as as we all know, there, there's no certainty that 2030 uh, will be the year in which the full rail line, if it is built, all 20 miles, all 21 stations to Ala Moana Center. Uh, whether that these numbers will hold up. In other words, whether they can grow things. We're not even sure when the interim service is going to start. And we should say nationally, as well as locally in Hawaii, there has been a decline in in bus uh, transportation, public transportation. And that's a troubling trend if the rail wants to attract people to ride it. Yeah, I have to chuckle. I think all the millennials are like, oh, it's taking too long to build this train. I'm going to go <laughs> uh, call up Uber and Lyft and uh, Turo and... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and Marcel actually even dug down deeper and, and says if that interim service does start, which is basically from East Kapolei to Aloha uh, Stadium, um, there's talk that that could begin shortly. We'll see. But even then, the ridership projections, the daily boarding numbers are only about uh, 12,600. That's two as a drop. It was about 15,000 the last time uh, they estimated. And even if it were to go to Middle Street, because as you know, there's a lot of people saying maybe we ought to just end this thing at Middle Street because that's really what the current funding allows for. It's only about 22,000 people that are going to ride that thing. And so then it makes you wonder, well, gee, is that going to work out financially? Because once the city's Department of Transportation Services takes over the rail line, it's going to cost like $130 million a year to operate. By the way, that includes the bus system 
and the handy van and I mean, 22,000 compared to 122,000, mm-hmm. you know, Middle Street versus Ala Moana. I suppose that could also be interpreted as a rationale to let's build the whole thing all the way to Ala Moana. But uh, it is a bit disconcerting if people want to stop it at Middle Street. Uh, would that really be desirable? Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned, DTS is going to actually operate this thing. And um, the current director, Roger Morton, you know, he used to head... Um, the whole transit services, right? The Hand- bus. Handy van, exactly, in the handy van. And he, Marcel did talk to him, and, and Mr. Morton is saying that, you know, actually the, the numbers are still encouraging. He said if it is 122000 uh, those are fairly robust. He thinks that it would cover the expenses. Um, remember, we, this is only a single rail line, right? It's not part of a, a vast system. But I got all sorts of caveats today, don't I? <laughs> it also assumes that, uh, in fact, that you know the buses, there's uh, or uh, rail cars rather, are, are going to stop um, the, the, every six minutes at, at peak travel, every ten minutes at off peak, and that there will be four of them. So there's a lot of what ifs, what ifs, uh, uncertainty in terms of the actual numbers. Will this thing pan out financially? Well, we know the uh, city officials, heart officials, I think the mayor and the DTS director are going to be heading to D.C. Uh, soon oh, with an updated um, you know, financial plan. So uh, uh, I'm sure all this info about the ridership is going to be included in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Real quickly, the next time they estimate ridership uh, will be next year, mid-2022. That will take into effect, take into account, rather, the COVID impact to the state, yes. uh, particularly to Oahu. Right. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was opinion and political editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Marcel Onray's full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we told you about the Maui Swim Club, founded in 1937 by noted coach Soichi Sakamoto. The club's three-year goal was to prepare island swimmers for the 1940 Olympics. Sakamoto started it after observing plantation children swimming in irrigation uh, sugar ditches close to the sugarcane fields. The local science teacher devised an innovative training program. Some of his techniques are still being used today. And under his guidance, several members eventually achieved prominence in the sport. Takashi Halohirose was a NCAA champion and a three-time All-American. Bill Smith broke four world records and became the club's first member to win an Olympic gold medal at the 1948 Olympics. Evelyn Kawamoto was a two-time bronze medalist at the 1952 Olympics. And if you were once on a swim team or grew up on Maui, then you might know that Suichi Sakamoto founded the Three-Year Swim Club, which is the answer we were looking for in today's Backyard Quiz. And our winner today, Max from Central Oahu, who says he's a swimmer. Thanks so much for calling in. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at HawaiiPublicRadio.org. 52 million views on YouTube can't be wrong. Join HPR for a live stream concert with Henry Herbert, the boogie-woogie piano sensation who people just can't stop watching. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton Studio in your living room, Saturday, July 31st at 6 p.m. Reserve your spot at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Keoki's Paradise and Dukes on Kauai.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Care Centers, providing primary care at 11 locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808-691-8200. There's an interesting exhibit at Art in Mark's Garage in downtown Honolulu that may catch your eye if you like comics. HBR's Noe Tanigawa joins us in the studio to tell us more. Hey, hi, <laughs> Catherine. So good to see you. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Even if you don't love comics, this is really an eye-catching exhibit. <laughs> you know, I was passing by last Saturday just walking around Chinatown, and there were, well, Outside Mark's garage were a bunch of people doing raku. There were plein air painters all standing on the sidewalk. It was really super fun. And then walking in, you see a bunch of, like, you see toys. You see um, sort of models. You see uh, entertainment going on. You see people talking and bending over these books that really are treasures, and they were made locally. It's the Pineapple Man and Friends show. <laughs> and, you know, I got to talk to the organizer, Sam Campos. He's been called the godfather of Hawaii comics, and he is the absolutely driven nexus for comic history here. You know, it's fun to talk to him. He, he says that one of the oldest comic book makers he's met here was a guy named Gary Adachi. He was an artist, illustrator, lived on um, Molokai, and was making, you know, comics on Xerox machines in the 80s. And over the years, there have been zines and different things, manga, full-on graphic novels and characters. Sam started doing his drawings freehand, of course. Um, his most famous creation was Pineapple Man, was a brainstorm from his art class in Kahuku High. And, you know, here locally, Pineapple Man actually outsold Batman and X-Men. Really? Yes, <laughs> when it was having its heyday. This was the, ah. eight, the 90s. So, you know, we've had our time with this stuff. Pineapple Man's real name, get this, Catherine, Isamu Pahoa, okay? He's Hawaiian, Japanese, Filipino, Okay, well, his stories come from legends and stories. He's got a big green mohawk, you know. It's, it's always been Campos's dream to get our stories from Hawaii on to the screen as well. So, you know, you folks have talked to a lot of people who've made Hawaii material here, mm -hmm. right? And it's been great to hear those interviews with all the successful writers, directors, actors. Campos here is testimony to how hard it is, how really, uh, what a feat it is that these people have succeeded in their craft. Campos sent, sank seven years into a superhero project, his project called Dragonfly, that was set here in Hawaii. I'd work a full-time job in the daytime, and I'd go out to Campbell Industrial Park, and I'd work till like three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, come home, sleep a half an hour, go back to work and do it all over again. So I was working round the clock, We'd film with the actors whenever people had time, so scheduling was it. And it's kind of hard to get a full-on production when you're feeding your cast and crew uh, fried salmon, musubis, and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Going back to the whole thing about discrimination against people from Hawaii, even though I had two international actors signed sign to this show, because they weren't white, they weren't bankable. They loved the designs, they liked the concept, they liked the story, everything about it. But the only way that they would produce it was if I dumped all my cast. I could have sold my project 10 times over, but the whole point was to, to produce it here, to draw on the local talent in Hawaii and show the rest of the world what we can do. And I still believe that to this day. 
Sam Campos. I mean, you know, this is of the story for a lot of indie projects. In fact, I guarantee you this weekend there are friends of film directors going out on a shoot, right, Catherine? Yeah, You've yeah. known a mm-hmm. lot of them. And I mean, recently, um, I think you folks talked to Chris Yogi. I recently saw his film, I Was a Simple Man. And watching it, I thought, wow, I just love seeing um, our own very streets, you know, there in films. Well, a lot of budding filmmakers have, uh, you know, have done this, but not every superhero has got to end up, you know, on the silver screen. You can enjoy them in comic books, and that nice. is what the show's about there at Mark's. Yeah, who um, doesn't love comic books? Yeah, <laughs> Did you have a favorite growing up? Um, Archie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spider-Man, Batman, you know, <laughs> Superman, yeah. I love them all. They, yeah, and they're they're all represented there. The same kind of you know speed of character, and you see the different when you see Waimalu, when you see Pearl City, when you see you know the back of Kualoa Valley uh, represented there in these cartoons. It's really super fun, and a lot of the legends and so on go back to um, uh, you know legends that have roots here in the islands, and it's super cool because you know at Mark's Garage, it's fun to stop by. I ended up. Um, looking at work by this somebody his name is abstract his abject comics is his name he's a young guy um his name is nobu and i noticed he had a sort of a a thing that looked like a purse sitting on his desk on his table in front of him he took it apart from me it had a hat and then he there was a creature sitting there after he took the hat off he opened the creature's mouth was a zipper he opened the mouth out came his tongue on the tongue was a little squid then he <laughs> yeah and then he op- turned around to the back he took off these two straps and off came the backpack inside the backpack were all of these toys and this was just something that a comic book creator had taken his mag- imagination into the 3D realm and made it out of fabric i mean these are the kinds of avenues that are explored in this show, a <laughs> crazy show, kind of now at Mark's Garage. Really enjoyable. Yeah, so how long does it run? Till the 30th. This weekend, okay. though, a lot of people are going to be there noon to five, a lot of the makers and stuff. And I got to say, Kim Taylor-Reese and Kano have been doing a great job programming over there. Yeah, well, okay. So folks are uh, out and about this weekend. and this Hopefully. Is wearing masks. So, you know, everybody wears masks. But yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, definitely uh, one to catch because it's only here for the end of this month. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All yeah. right. Okay. Thanks for highlighting this, Noe. Thank you. <laughs> we have been hearing from HBR's Noe Tanigawa. Check out her features on hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, a heads up for motorists. Prepare for the back-to-school gym first week of August. No one's sure what to expect as students head back to the classroom. We also plan to hear from Ilani School, which wants to make vaccines mandatory for its students. What do you think? Call our talkback line. Leave your comments. And our show is uh, produced thanks to Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, Matt Fairfax is interning with us this summer. John DeMello wrote our Backyard Quiz intro and our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. Boy, do I want to see them uh, live again. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Mm-hmm.